All right, my friend Mary Catherine back there uh, is going to lead us in prayer this morning, so lead on. Blessed Father, we thank you for the ability to assemble here and to become more acquainted with your process of creation and sustaining what you have created. We ask a special blessing on John as he comes and, and gives us that knowledge. Um, Lord, we are overcome with joy at this season for what you have done, and it's an honor for us to be here and study and to worship you, Holy Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning, my friends. Good morning. Uh, how many of you, I just want to ask a question just so I can get a little bit oriented here. Uh, how many of you attended I guess you could call it part one of this series. The All right, so about half of you, and we have a bunch of people that uh, weren't able to come, and that's fine too. Come on in, you're not late. We're just starting. Um, we usually have good-looking people come to the front. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay, well... The last five weeks, the ones that were able to come, we studied together something that I titled uh, The Sacred Science and Selves. And what my goal in that section was, was not to uh, disprove uh, material or scientific evolution or to prove it, but simply to show us in the 21st century some of the dynamics and pieces of information, both from the Bible and science, that we all need to know so that we can continue to think. So I left it open-ended. Everybody's got their own view about how God created the cosmos, and uh, nothing in this section is going to uh, try to pr prove or disprove material or naturalistic evolution one way or the other. However, uh, this section of the course is called spiritual evolution. So now we're going to switch, whereas the last five weeks I always try to keep science and everything in, in as best of a balance as I could. Uh, <clears throat> now we're going to start focusing on the sacred dimension. And in particular, uh, some of the teachings from the New Testament that I think clearly show that evolution is taking place in the spiritual realm. And so, I want you to suspend all of your apprehensions for a second and uh, stay with me and ask all your questions and we're going to work through this together. Now, if you could get your hand out today, I, I want to do something old school. Uh, how many of you know what a thesis is? Aha! Uh, anybody have a definition? Write out for what you learn through... Something that you would write out as a result of your studies. Getting warm. That's a great foundation. Uh, what else is it? A thesis. Yes? Wouldn't it be characterized by first, le well, I shouldn't say it that way, by original investigation? Well, that's, yeah, that's his point. There, there's a body of study that a human being engages in. And then when you get to the place of what is called a thesis, what is it? Yeah, you state what your um, point of view is. 
And it really comes from a Greek word tithemine, which means to throw. So a thesis is something that you throw down in front of other people with a view towards saying, uh, <clears throat> based on my study or based on uh, these factors, I believe this is the truth. And so then it's up to the person that makes such a bold move to do what? To justify it and assemble the... Do they use thesis in legal uh, parlance? Do they? Okay. So then it's up to the presenter who's putting forth the thesis to then give the information that buttresses the thesis and the audience is supposed to listen to this and say, well, did you give enough information to justify your thesis or not? So I'm going to do that old school today. On the, f on the front of your uh, uh, cover is uh, my thesis for this section of the course. Spiritual evolution, a vision of God creating the material cosmos, okay? So you notice I'm not saying uh, when, and I'm not saying how, what am I saying? What's my thesis? Who? Yes, God did it. And why did God do it? As a maternal matrix. Ooh. What's a maternal matrix? You don't know. <laughs> every woman in here should know that. What's <clears throat> what, that every woman should know this or? Yes. Uh, getting right there, motherly, maternal, mother. And what's a matrix? Not the movie. It, it's the, uh, the um, constituent form or stuff or whatever it is out of which comes something. So I'm asserting or concluding that God created the material cosmos so that it would function as a maternal matrix to do what? To bring forth, which is what mothers do, what? Cosmic kids. Yes. And today you're going to see a passage in the New Testament that displays God's overarching grand plan to bring forth cosmic kids out of the material cosmos. Uh, next week we'll get a little bit more specific and we'll talk about um, what, it, what impact this view has for us, in particular our bodies. And then the final week I'm going to trace you through the New Testament and show you the uh, micro steps that God uses in the New Testament that would be able to be called spiritual evolution. Now having said that, who's got a definition of evolution? A uh, change over time. Usually it, it involves some sort of a, a, a rise in complexity. Uh, it's a cause and effect mechanism that one thing leads to another and things uh, ch change uh, in response to stress. stress. <laughs> yes, you could say that. <clears throat> um, just your environment, the environment that the organism lives in. Has anyone heard of microevolution before? 
Microevolution? I know you have, our resident scientists. Microevolution? Little evolution, and it means change within a species. Species changing over time and adapting to their environment. Fact or theory? Stone cold fact. No one disputes this. What's the easiest way to show it? Watching TV. You saw. Science Channel? It must have been true because it was on TV. Uh, okay, that's a good one. Birds adapting to the environment so they can get food. The one that we encounter just like every day. Probably 75% of the people in this room encounter this phenomenon every day. How many of you have dogs? Microevolution. Let's breed a uh, shepherd with a, um, a poodle. I don't know if that's possible, but if it is, what are you going to get? Well, yeah, you could do it. You could do it with one of those big poodles. Yeah, yeah. So then you breed them together, and then what happens? Ugly, Dave says. <clears throat> you get um, a, 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 an adaption and a change, and then if you wanted, you know, like the, the big-time scientists nowadays, they're working with on the cellular level, uh, microscopically and because they can uh, do experiments with cells and other little tiny organisms whose lifespan is so short that they can run all these experiments on them and over time they can get a good uh, picture whereas it takes longer for do dogs. Uh, you know, <coughs> let's do another experiment. This one's fun. Uh, what happens, is it'll be gross, but just I want to get the point across, in terms of macro and microevolution. So let's say uh, we take, um, so that I don't bias it, give me an ethnic group. I take a Hungarian, which would be a European person, um, uh, Caucasian, and t let's, uh, no, let's take 10 Hungarians, and let's take 10... Italians? Okay, let's take 10 Italians. And let's take uh, 10 Koreans, yes! <laughs> okay, now we got Asians, now we got Mediterranean, now we have uh, Central European. Norwegian? Uh, uh, yeah, more white people, though. I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, Norwegians up there. We'll put them in that mix. <clears throat> and one other group I want to put in. Not Amer American Indian? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, great. So we take those people and we send them to an island. And we say to them, have fun fulfilling the first commandment of the Bible. <laughs> Which is what? Yeah. And we isolate them on that island <clears throat> and we leave them for 100 years. And then we come back. What will we find? <laughs> the Italians would have dominated, yes, they would. <laughs> all right. Well, we, uh, we, we would find that all of that DNA would have mingled together in over 100 years by all of this crossbreeding, 
And it depends on where the island is. I didn't tell you where the island is. Where's the island going to be? Cuba. Cuba. If we put them in Cuba and we come back in 100 years, what's going to predominate? The darker-skinned, uh, the, the Norwegians, they'll still be beautiful, but they're all going to have a tan. <laughs> right? Well, what if we put the island up in Norway? Then what? That, no, that, the, the whiteness, it's in the mix, will predominate. Okay, so that is absolute proof of what? Microevolution. Now I'm going to get gross. So, so if we send um, 10 humans and 10 chimpanzees to that island, And in a moment of desperate loneliness. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Thank you for not getting sick, but it illustrates the point. Now, you know, the reason I choose this is because chimps' DNA and human DNA is what? Like 98.5% similarly. In fact, one, one time they, tr they pulled a trick on these researchers and they took chimpanzee DNA and they gave it to, to a researcher in this lab and said, would you check this person's DNA out and let's see if, uh, wh what could be going on in their, in their body, in their system. And the researcher didn't know it was a chimpanzee so he studied it and worked on it for a couple of hours and came back and said, this person has some profoundly uh, <laughs> weird DNA. Uh, the 1.5% that he was picking up. But 98.5% similar? So what, what's going to happen if we send the chimp and the humans to the island? Come back in 100 years. 10 men and 10 female chimps. Not going to work out. Why not? They're different species. And the definition scientifically of a species is something that can uh, breed and reproduce. So that's not going to happen. But the thing is, so that's, that if it did happen, though, we would have an example of what? Uh, it would be macroevolution. Yes. And so, of course, the whole contention in, in the scientific uh, world is, you know, they think most people, most scientists, think macroevolution has occurred that species can change. The only problem with it is it takes so long that what? You can't observe it, so you can infer it from a whole welter of scientific information. But to actually watch it like Judge Haas did on TV, uh, no, we can't do that. So uh, I'm going to suggest to you that in the spiritual realm, macroevolution actually does occur. And today you're going to see a passage that I think teaches this. And so we're going to read it now. It's in Romans 8, starting at verse 18. And usually I, I realize that it's not a whole lot of fun sitting there and listening to somebody read a long extended passage. But I don't want to jump into this until we have read it together. I want you to relax just listen to me read it, follow along, 
And let's see if this idea that God is using the material cosmos to bring forth cosmic kids, which would be macroevolution in the spiritual realm, is at least plausible. So I'm starting at verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what they see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that uh, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, God also called. And those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, God also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will God not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you could take this hand out and you and I are going to do a little study together. I laid it out so that we can sort of, as a community, extract the information out of this text and then we're going to try to all assemble it. 
Now, let me give you the big passage here, which is in verse 29. What is God's cosmic plan? What is God doing? What's the ultimate goal? Verse, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's a transformation. We are going to be supernaturally turned into another kind of being. We're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. We're still going to be human, but we're going to be glorified humans, which means what? The Yeah, the, the whole context is that he's going to take us up and to conform us into Christ so that Jesus would be the firstborn among the family of God. So we're all going to be sharing in his uh, glorification, and we're going to be transformed so that we can do that. Uh, and that is a change of what? Can you see it? It's a change in the species. What you will be is not what you are now. God's going to change us and turn us into something that is far beyond what we could have ever imagined. Now, I wanted you to see that so you can see the big idea. So now let's go through the text carefully, starting at verse 18, and let's find out what we can find out about the old creation, starting on the left-hand column. What's the first thing that we find out? Okay, so the, you're putting all those things into the category that he calls sufferings. So he says, I, I consider that the present sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared to what? So you've got to go over to the right-hand column now. What's, what's going to come? The glory that is to come. Okay, now keep your eyes on that glory notion because it's shot through the entire passage. So this old creation, this maternal matrix that we are living in right now is fraught with suffering but it's not worth, worthy to be even compared to what will be as God brings God's plan together. Okay, next verse, eight, 819. What does he say about the creation? Old creation, sorry. It's waiting. Does he, does he qualify it at all? It's, it's, it's waiting for something. Waiting how? It's eagerly longing. There's an anticipation within the material uh, dimension that God has put into it and it's longing for something. Does he say what it's longing for? For the revealing. Something's going to be revealed. Has not yet been revealed. What's going to be revealed in the new creation? The children of God in their glorified state, which we are not now. So God's working through this uh, material cosmos to bring forth glorified creatures. Uh, next verse, 820. What does it say about the old creation? It was subjected to futility, not by the one who created it, not willingly, but in the hope. It was, it wasn't, now, who's the one that subjected creation to futility? And this is an exegetical interpretive problem. Who would you think? Uh, you, some people think it was Satan that ruined the material creation. Some people think it's the first man, the first man's sin, uh, as Paul taught in Romans 5. 
uh, self. I mean, so then we, as we are all in Adam, we would all be participants in the subjecting the creation to futility. Great. I think God. You think God. Okay, so those are your four options. And I, I'm not sure we can prove it, but I actually do think, I, I, I used to think Adam, and now I think that it is God's sovereignty that allowed this to happen, allowed the fall to happen, allowed the futility to be embedded into the material creation. Uh, I don't think Adam had the power to, because he's talking about the entire cosmos. So I think God allowed this futility to be woven into the material creation. To what end? Does he say? There, it, not willingly, but there's a hope there. Now you've got to go over to verse 21, right-hand column. What's the hope? It will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So now you have two words here, futility and corruption or decay, depending on your translation, that is woven into this material creation. Now, in scientific terms, what is that? What is the uh, principle uh, that we... Uh, call in science that it describes things breaking down. Well, it, it's called disease, but there's it's a entropy, the law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics, which says what? <clears throat> Disorder. Things tend to to be disordered. They come together in systems, and they work together, but over time, what happens? They, f they fall apart. This is, this is something that's embedded in, into the entire material universe. That's why everything always breaks down. So the universe, this world, the old creation has been uh, subjugated to this uh, law of second thermodynamics. Everything is breaking down, but there's a hope attached, Paul says, as God is allowing this whole process, this material cosmos, to go through all these forces that are even really hard for us to understand, out of which he's bringing what? The hope of what? Liberation of who? Of the children of God. So as products of the maternal matrix, you and me, God is working in and through the cosmos to bring forth creatures that are eventually destined to do what? Escape what law? The law of futility, decay, entropy, second law of thermodynamics. That's going to be, uh, we're not going to have that as part of our destiny any longer. We're going to be liberated from it. Yes? Well, because I don't, I don't think in the whole context of the whole Bible 
that we would ever want to ascribe the forces that lead to death and decay uh, to God's ultimate plan. This is viewed as a, a deficit, something that is not the ideal. So God wouldn't create something that would be purposely to fail. You see, God wouldn't create a human and make them sin or make them do something that would cause uh, all of these problems that we have in society, but God does permit it. And at the back end of the passage, we, Paul tells us some things. These are the great sovereign acts of God. So let's look at them real quick just to re-anchor them in your mind. Uh, look at verse 29, and he lists five things. Uh, I was going to do this at the end, Judge, but it's good to do it now so that we can get an idea of the God that we're talking about. So what's the first thing that he says God um, is ascribed to God in this passage? God what? For new. What's foreknowledge? Well, that's not predestination, but he does say the next one. He does say predestined. Okay. What's foreknowledge? Omniscience. It's omniscience. So God knows all things instantaneously, without learning, sees the end from the beginning. This is what the Bible says. Um, I'm, I'm looking at one person in this audience is very astute theologically, and I know he would know this. There is the view that is now hot among theologians, which is called open theism, which is the belief that God isn't really omniscient, that God is powerful, but God does not know everything from the end from the beginning, and so God has created this cosmos and is sort of guiding it and involved with it, but the future, it's open. Has anybody heard this before? Very hot today. Okay, thanks. So, but that's not what the Bible really teaches. It doesn't teach that God is simply guiding something to a hopeful end uh, and trying to do God's best to get it there. He's saying, what? Well, God knew everything from the beginning, foreknew it. And because God foreknew all possibilities and everything that could be and every option that could be, God then allowed this, sovereignly allowed this system to get started. And then what's the second thing that he says God does? Predestinate. Based on God's foreknowledge, God works out all these things but didn't cause them all to happen. God intervenes into the system that God foreknew that would, uh, out of all the possibilities that could, God intervenes and then starts working things towards a predestined end. But do you remember what I talked about last week when we were talking about what scientists now believe about the cosmos, the material cosmos? You remember what I said about at the beginning? If there was one thing, even one tiny thing that would have been different at the beginning of the supposed Big Bang, what, what do scientists say? If it, one little thing would have been different, we wouldn't be here. So if, if it freaks you out to say predestination, you mean everything's got uh, a plan that's being worked out and uh, you know, we're not totally free, don't be freaked out because now science is caught up with theology and they basically believe the same thing. It's, you're here today because why? Because you're supposed to be. Or there it was inevitable, let's put it that way. Even scientifically. 
But of course, it's more comforting to believe that there's a God involved in this whole thing. So God is sovereignly working things out. Now, what else? Predestined? Those whom he predestined? Uh, that's here. That's the fourth. Thank you. Justified? Called? It's the last one. Glorified. As an aside, why is that in past tense since we're not glorified yet? Because in God's mind, you're already glorified in God's mind. Because God's not in time, so God sees the end from the beginning. So, hey, by the way, this has been very helpful in my life. Do you have any people in your life, uh, Christians in particular, that are causing you pain, that you're having difficulties with, that you don't care for? Don't raise your hand. Uh, <clears throat> that you're having challenges loving. One of the things that I do uh, is when I pray for people like that, I, by faith, embrace God's teachings on this, and I view them how? As if they're already glorified. In other words, I'm viewing people the way God says that God does. Now, what happens when you start looking at people that you're having difficulties with and you say, instead of looking at their faults in their current situation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see them as they are, as God says they will be, as God says they are in God's mind, as glorified creatures. Then what happens? Oh, what? what? In my own mind, I just said, then all of a sudden, you don't start looking that great. Well, yeah, but the, the, the secret of this whole thing is, if I look at you as glorified, then it, I can see myself with all my faults and problems currently as what? God has said what? That you're both going to come to that same end. That we're both going to come to that same end and we're both going to be glorified. So who can do the calculus and figure out the end point? Who am I to fuss with God? He thinks we're both brothers. <laughs> and also... See, where we all get the hang-up here is, you notice he, he, he didn't put one in there that's usually associated with this sequence. Something's sort of missing. Sanctification! What's sanctification? That's what? The process to glorification. The process to glorification. Well, why doesn't he put it in there? Because the emphasis on the passage is what? Not, not just this that we're going through right now, but what? God's great plan that he's going to bring us all to the state of glorification. Now, that's just a little aside. Think about that. Uh, yes, sir? No, we can't. Well, it's pretty easy in my mind, and that's because I'm sort of simplistic. How do we know, what does Paul say uh, that we can tell who a Christian is? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. He says, anybody that says Jesus is Lord 
You can't really say that unless you've been empowered by the Spirit of God to do it. Now, of course, somebody could say the words, Jesus is Lord, and not mean it. And so Paul doesn't mean that. He means those people that you hang around with that seemingly say, Jesus is Lord, and what? And, Savior. and well, it's implied, Lord and Savior. Uh, when they say it, and they have uh, obvious intentionality, and they're not just going through the steps... Paul says when people say that, the only way they can really genuinely say that is what? Is if the Spirit gave them the ability to do it. And then he says, no one can say Jesus is cursed by the Spirit of God. So when somebody curses Jesus, it's a pretty good indicator what? That that's not the Spirit working through them. So when somebody says Jesus is Lord, Paul says... If they, well, I'm qualifying this, he, but I think this is what he means. If they say it and they obviously intend to mean it, then we are supposed to con- assume and conclude what? That's my family. That's my Christian. Even if I don't like them, even if they got problems in their life. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, that's the grounds for what great teaching of the New Testament. How are we justified? by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when somebody says they believe and they, uh, and they in, seem to indicate that they believe it, at least until proved otherwise, my, the presumption is what? Accept him as justified. But what we do always is what? Kind of block that out and drill into what area of people's lives? The sanctification. And then, of course, If you look at people in that way and examine them in that way, what are you going to find? All of their shortcomings. And so it drags you down. So I think in Paul's flow here, and I'm I'm just sharing something with you that has been helpful to me. I move from here to here, and of course I care about this, and I want to, for my own life and for other people's lives, but it's so liberating to start looking at one another. How? The way God says you are actually going to be makes a big change. So I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, there is in, in Christian... It did not answer your question? Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to refer you to this book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and especially in book four. That's the one I really want you to lead, read. If you, if you want to get the most out of these next three weeks, get this book and read book four. It'll take you no more than an hour to read it. Very short chapters. And in, then, in there, he says, life is not as simple as 
these people are 100% Christians and these people are 100% not. He says, actually, as God is working through the world, uh, some people are slowly becoming Christians, right? And some people seemingly are slowly becoming what? Falling away from their profession. And he says, and it's very difficult for a human being to jump in there at, at any point in time and to know exactly what's going on. So you're right. It's not our job to go around and, and you know, uh, determine these things. I'm just saying as the presumption of, as we're wor working and living with each other, if somebody says they're a Christian, uh, and unless there's like some absolute uh, contrary uh, evidence to the other, otherwise. I mean, Adolf Hitler said he believed in God. Uh, he never said he believed in Christ, but he said he believed in God. What do you think about that claim? Well, you look at it and say, I don't think so. But aside from those very extreme examples, just in everyday life, when people say they're Christians, then they're justified by faith, and even though their present life is maybe not the way that we would think that it would be, Paul says, in God's mind, when God looks at them, how does God see them? Glorified. So, I'm just sharing that with you. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'll chat with you later if you want to get into more detail. Okay, that, that's the best I can do for this morning. Okay, um, 22, thank you. Now, you notice, we've, we've put together all of the things on the old creation, and so what did we learn? What does God call this earth, this material creation? What's the analogy that he puts in here? He's, the creation itself is groaning in the pangs of childbirth. Did you see this? Should I point it out again? Do you see where he says this? Uh, Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. So he's making an analogy. What is this earth, this cosmos that we live in? He characterizes that what? As what? As a pregnant woman. Do you ever think about this world that way? Pretty interesting, isn't it? So, Creation is longing and groaning and anticipating that out of this material that God has put together, God is bringing forth what? A new type of creature. Not just the way we were in our old humanity, which is bound up in the uh, fallen cosmos, the groan, but it's bringing forth something new, which is what? That's why I call them cosmic kids. They are human beings who have been glorified, changed, changed within the species, and they will now be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I'm going to stop there. What do you think about that concept? The universe, the, the earth, Paul analogizes as a pregnant woman. And out of this material cosmos, God's bringing what? The old human race? The new creation. And you know all this. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? If you're a new creation, then you're not, well, you're still part of it to a certain extent, but if you're a new creation now, then there's been a, a break or a change or a, should I even dare say it? If you're a new creation, there's been a, an evolution. Ooh, really? In church we can say it? There's been an evolution from the old creation into the new creation. And of course, right now, uh, Lewis talks about this in his book. He says, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, show me your new creations and, and let me see, I want to compare them to the people that are part of the old creation. What happens when we do that sometimes when we take a Christian, well, and we take a not yet Christian judge. That's what I call them. I don't know if they're going to become Christians. And by the way, of course, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So of course God wants everybody to come. And that's another whole thing. But not yet Christians and Christians, you compare them sometimes, and what do you find? Not a whole lot of difference. Sometimes, tragically, we find what? The Christians, somebody said under their breath, are worse. I mean, even the New Testament says that. Paul said to the Corinthians, you guys are doing things that not even the pagans do. You know that, right? He said that. So, sure, you can pick up, you know, random. You can find not yet Christians that are wonderful people integrated, healthy, psychologically doing well, successful in life. Currently, they don't feel a need for God. Then you can pick out some old ragamuffin Christian like me and compare them to those people and say, what, that's your new man? <laughs> right? Isn't this what we do? So if you read Lewis's book, you'll see he says something pretty interesting. How long does evolution take, by the way? What did we learn? long time, right? So God's working in this material cosmos to bring forth people that used to be here, came over here, and then that long process starts leading to what? Glorification and the confirmation towards Christ. Now that takes a long time. But he says, here's the trick. These people because they're not part of the new creation, even though they're doing well biologically now as part of the material creation, what's going to happen to their lives and their bodies and their integrated personalities and their... Well, it will be made new if what? if they come over here and get into Christ, who is the author and source of the new creation. But what if they say, ah, no, I don't, I've looked into that. I don't see anything going on there that I really need. So I'm just going to live out the rest of my life as a biological creature. What do you think? Well, before we get into all the separation thing, what's eventually going to happen to the most integrated, intelligent, successful person? What law is going to kick in? The second law of thermodynamics, entropy, our brains are going to start going mushy if they haven't already. 
our bodies are going to fall apart. And so everything that is part of this old creation is subject to what Paul says, this law of decay and futility, whereas these people, because they have now allowed God's life to come into them, what does Paul say their destiny is? Eventually, they're going to be liberated and transformed into the image of Christ, and so they will escape the fallenness of this cosmos. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, yes, sir. Self, this is not what I want. So maybe God is causing this futility, and I wake up, and I don't. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, and we can suspend the theological controversy for a, a minute. Whether God caused it or permits it, what we can all agree on is what? What he just said is that we are experiencing futility and frustration in this material world because, as you learn from this passage, this material world that God created is a means to an end and it's not supposed to be perfect in and of itself. And here's another analogy that Lewis uses in this book that I hope you will look into. Does anyone remember when they were in the womb? Why do parents talk to them then if you can't remember anything? No, we don't. But if we could have, if you could use your imagination, what would you have thought, do you think, as you were cavorting? Yeah, this is life. How would you know anything else? And uh, if your parents said to you, oh... I, I can't wait till you come forth and I'm going to show you the sun and the ocean. What would the little fetus say? I have no idea what you're talking about. So then we could insert into the um, um, into the uh, into the matrix a little light and we could say to the fetus well the sun is like this light and we could say and the ocean is like the water that you're swimming in and maybe the child the little fetus would say what well that's interesting but I like it here. It's warm. It's safe. Three, well, not three meals a day. Constant food. <laughs> and Lewis says, yes, you would have thought that staying in this mater maternal matrix would be safe, but he says if you stay there forever, what? You're eventually going to die. So here's, here's the analogy. If God's going to analogize this whole earth as a pregnant woman in order to bring forth children... Why would we want to retain this? This is merely what? I mean, it's a very important thing, but it's, 
It's a means to an end. It's a temporary stage. The whole cosmos was created by God to do what? To bring forth creatures, material creatures, and turn them into what kind of creatures? Glorified, supernatural, new bodies on a stage and level that we can't hardly even grasp right, right now. Yes, sir. Just getting back to the question. I may be way off base. When we look back in the Old Testament, miracles happen. Boom. Water, water. Mm -hmm. God's wrath. Boom. Blood. People die. Lots of them. Boom. Done. Now, an evolution of the continues. Now we're talking about seed. Now God clears these little things. Responsibility of gardening ourselves, gardening our brothers, waiting for the nine months for the baby to come. Mm -hmm. We still want the water to wine. We mm -hmm. still want the world to end. And then when we look at people who we don't think are acting right, or people who have tragedies, we say God caused it. These are all seeds that God uses to evolve us. To, for the and I think that's one of our big angles. We ask these questions because we can't look for mm -hmm. too impatient, too, okay. too lack of understanding. Okay, and so you, you replicated perfectly what does Paul say in verse 24. In this hope, we have been saved, but people don't hope for what they have. You hope for that which is in the future. So this text is showing us exactly as you said, that God is giving us the hope that we're gonna be conformed exactly to the image of Christ and has put us in a maternal matrix and now if we understand that and understand the span of time that God is working with, it's a lifetime, right? He's not gonna do it directly anymore, it's up to you, buddy. Some of that. Um, I wouldn't quite say it that strongly. Um, what I would say is God works in and through means. And the means frequently turn out to be what? Us and other means too. So God is working through very many different means, the whole material creation and us, to bring us into this place of uh, conformity to Christ. Now, we just have a few more minutes left. So, does the New Testament teach spiritual evolution? Are you going to be different when you're glorified and conformed to the image of Christ? Uh, yes. <clears throat> um, now, what do I draw from that? What do you draw from it? Yes, sir. Tell us. Because what goes in that spot is greater. We are not glorified because of justification or sanctification. The grace is what puts us into glory. And, and Paul says that hundreds, hundreds of times. Sometimes. In right. fact, when he confronts 
thank you. You're such a great theologian, and I mean that sincerely. None of this, it's all God doing it, right? God is, it's God's grace doing it. It's not because we're sanctified that we're going to be glorified. It's the sovereign act of God. Yes, beautiful. Now, yes. Well, there's no doubt that the New Testament teaches that, that, that we have volitional ability, but it also teaches simultaneously that what? We can make choices, but ultimately God is, God's in charge. So God even uses our bad choices and our faulty choices, uses everything to bring about that which God has determined to do, and that is what? What did you learn today? You're going to be, you're, you're, you are new creatures now and you're going to become fully realized new creatures as God works out God's cosmic plan and that's spiritual evolution. Yes, Jack? I still feel like I'm in the womb. <laughs> <clears throat> well, that was the last thing I wanted to say to you. Now, as, a, as an experiment today, when you go out today and look at material creation, now you'll, you'll, somebody, somebody will say, this sounds new agey. This sounds weird. This doesn't sound Christian. But just listen to me for a second. When you go out there today, what you learn today, you could, you could legitimately look at this cosmos, this world, and say what about it? Well, there's a lot of changes going on. It's, an, it's my mother. <laughs> I know. See, you just this is right from the Bible. The earth is our great mother. I, that's what I said. I know some of you were going to say, oh, that's Indian. Well, maybe, maybe the Indians got this notion from God. Because now we find out that God himself is saying in the New Testament that this material cosmos is our material, maternal matrix out of which God is bringing what? A new species, a new kind of creature. Glorified creatures. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, Suzanne gets the last word. I mean, you know, you can really get into this mythic thing here that's being taught. If the earth is the mother, then God is the father, and God, as it were, has done what to the material cosmos? I mean, I don't want to push it too far to offend anybody, but in effect, what is the Bible saying in this analogy? That God has done what? Inserted, inseminated, put seed, put life into the material cosmos to do what? Just to have material stuff? No. To bring out of the material what? Creatures like us and then to take creatures like us where? Into the next stage into glory. So I'm sorry I uh, blew your minds uh, if I did and I'm, at least you have Ohio State's victory to console you today. <clears throat>
So uh, let's, let's say a prayer together before you go. God, uh, you know, despite all of my inadequacies, I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, take this awesome truth and on the level that each one of us can understand it, make it not just a thing in our head, but a, something that will change our lives. We thank you for creating the earth as our mother. We thank you for putting life into it, and we thank you for bringing forth over time that we can't even conceive of and through a process that we're just beginning to understand, all so that you could bring us to that place where we are like your son. And we pray in his name, amen. Okay, God bless you. See you next week. Oh, by